moment of stewardship. We are in stewardship season and in the midst of a sermon series about various aspects of stewardship. We've talked about the stewardship of technology, the stewardship of time, and the stewardship of community. Today we're going to talk about the stewardship of finances, and next week we will wrap up the series talking about the stewardship of gratitude. So as we prepare now to hear God's word read and proclaimed, let us bow for a word of prayer. O Lord, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. So illumine now our hearts and our minds by the power of your spirit, that as the scriptures are read and your word proclaimed, we might receive with joy what you have to say to us today. We make this prayer in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, the word made flesh. Amen. The Old Testament reading today is Psalm 112. I invite you now to listen for God's word to you. Praise the Lord. Happy are those who fear the Lord, who greatly delight in his commandments. Their descendants will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in their houses, and their righteousness endures forever. They rise in the darkness as a light for the upright. They are gracious, merciful, and righteous. It is well with those who deal generously and lend, who conduct their affairs with justice. For the righteous will never be moved. They will be remembered forever. They are not afraid of evil tidings. Their hearts are firm, secure in the Lord. Their hearts are steady. They will not be afraid. In the end, they will look in triumph on their foes. They have distributed freely. They have given to the poor. Their righteousness endures forever. Their horn is exalted in honor. The wicked see it and are angry. They gnash their teeth and melt away. The desire of the wicked comes to nothing. And the New Testament lesson today is 2 Corinthians 9, verses 6 through 15. Listen once again for the word of the Lord. The Apostle Paul writes, The point is this, the one who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and the one who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each of you must give as you have made up your mind, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to provide you with every blessing in abundance, so that by always having enough of everything, you may share abundantly in every good work. As it is written, he scatters abroad, he gives to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way for your great generosity, which will produce thanksgiving to God through us. For the rendering of this ministry not only supplies the needs of the saints, but also overflows with many thanksgivings to God. Through the testing of this ministry, you glorify God by your obedience to the confession of the gospel of Christ and by the generosity of your sharing with them and with all others, while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace 
that God has given you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. During my second year of seminary in Pittsburgh, my father was battling skin cancer back in Denver. And as his health deteriorated, I was spending as much time with him as I possibly could. I was able to align a full load of classes on Tuesdays, and then I would fly to Denver on Wednesday and fly back to Pittsburgh on Saturday in time to participate in worship and ministry at my field education church on Sunday. And I would repeat that uh, many times. One week I was unable to return to Pittsburgh in time to preach on Sunday uh, because of a scary episode with my dad's treatment. And the next week the pastor of that church met me at the seminary and I wondered if I might be disciplined for all the hours I had missed or perhaps for asking him to preach for me at the last minute. But instead, he shared with me that the church had taken up an impromptu offering the Sunday I was gone to help support the cost of my airfare back and forth between Denver and Pittsburgh, and he presented me with a check for nearly $900. It was one of the few times in my life that I was left truly speechless. Have you ever been the recipient of a generosity so surprising and beautiful that you didn't know what to say? Or perhaps even better, have you ever observed your own generosity received with speechless awe and gratitude? This sort of generosity is so profound because it's non-obligatory. It's unanticipated and unforeseen and eclipses what might be expected by the default social contract that defines what it means to be a good and decent person within society. In other words, it's above and beyond simply giving the bare minimum that constitutes what we all might agree is a person's fair share. Generosity injects an astonishing element of surprise into the world's assumed system of reasonable exchange. Generosity confronts its recipient with the question, do I really deserve this? And then leads to the response that, wow, I have received a grace beyond what I might otherwise merit. It's a reminder that grace has prevailed once again, and that deservedness is no metric by which to contain the generosity of the God who gives abundantly. So it is that the generous life is, at the end of things, the Christian life. All churches, of course, depend on the giving of their congregations to conduct their ministries. In some churches, giving is a sort of necessary evil that just keeps things running, and in the marketplace of religious goods and services, it's only fair to pay something in exchange for the products received, right? Good music on Sunday, an officiant at a wedding or funeral, a place to refer someone who's struggling. The giving culture of these sorts of churches is more or less one of obligation. And such churches are marked by those who give reluctantly or under compulsion, as the Apostle Paul describes them. Giving reluctantly is a matter of paying one's dues. Giving under compulsion plays on people's guilt that they aren't paying their fair share, and so their giving becomes a means of relieving 
that guilt. Contrast this culture of obligation with the culture of generosity that exists in other churches. Vibrant churches exhibit a culture of giving not marked by reluctance or compulsion, but with joy. God loves a cheerful giver, Paul writes, and indeed vibrant churches often stand in awe at what they're able to accomplish because members so often step up and rally around a particular cause or ministry. Vibrant churches see needs not as obstacles, but as opportunities to share God's abundance and bear witness to God's presence. I believe that RPC is a generous church that falls into the latter of these two categories. Compulsion and reluctance do not get a congregation to the situation that we're in today with our legacy of mission and service in this beautiful place. We stand on the shoulders of generous people past and present, who have surely found joy in their giving and in their sharing what they've been able to share, or else, well, they wouldn't have given so abundantly. Even while we have much to celebrate, our collective generosity can always continue to grow. Good stewardship is always looking for ways to move more deeply away from giving reluctantly towards giving cheerfully. And so every October not just out of necessity, but also as an extension of our discipleship, the church talks about money. And we ask members to make a financial commitment or pledge for the following year. Within a culture of generosity, stewardship is not a matter of paying our dues. It's about widening our open-handedness so that our lives are more shaped by what we give away than by what we're able to acquire for ourselves. Every stewardship season, we're presented with an opportunity to assess the level of generosity in our lives. And in doing so, we might ask ourselves questions like, what values do I want to pass on to my children and grandchildren? What do I want to teach them about living the generous life? What if someone, say a new Christian, asked me what they should give to their church? What would I tell them? And do I abide by the same recommendation I would offer to others? In his book, The Paradox of Generosity, sociologist Christian Smith observes that while nearly everyone aspires to be generous, truly generous Americans self-identify as generous, while those with lower levels of generosity are aware that they're not living up to their own aspirations. His point is that we cannot pretend to be generous just to receive its spiritual benefits. You cannot trick yourself into thinking that you're generous. In other words, it isn't possible to be both a reluctant and a cheerful giver at the same time. Generosity is something that feels good. It's something that you know you have when you have it. It feels just like Paul describes when he says, you will be enriched in every way for your great generosity, which will produce thanksgiving to God. So if generosity feels so good, why do we sometimes hold back? Well, we might identify at least three obstacles that sometimes inhibit our generosity. And the first obstacle is simply wealth insecurity. The more you have, the more you have to lose. It's true, and the future is always unpredictable. We don't know when a major expense might 
come out of nowhere or when our main source of income might change. Monthly payments of all kinds can add up even when our income feels dependable. The antidote to wealth insecurity is faith. We cannot reap before we sow. We cannot work out our generosity ahead of time, knowing exactly how the subsequent year will develop. Faithfulness in the present requires entrusting the unfolding of the future to God. A second obstacle to generosity is giving illiteracy. Many of us simply aren't coached too specifically about what our faith teaches about wealth and giving. We're told we should give, we're told we should be generous, but usually it all stays relatively vague, right? Most churches don't particularly like talking about money because it feels awfully personal. Just as it is somewhat taboo in our culture to talk about or ask for money, so also in churches we sometimes fear alienating people if we speak frankly about wealth and God's claim upon it. The antidote to giving illiteracy is honesty. Consider how bluntly Paul talks about money in our scripture text today. He says, here's the point. The one who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and the one who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. And he goes on to say that our willingness to be generous is a matter of obedience to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus, after all, spoke about money in 11 of his 39 parables. So Paul isn't afraid to speak candidly about the crucial importance of generosity to the ministries of the church, and so neither should we. We should talk about money and wealth honestly and transparently, and more often, not just in the pulpit in October, but also in classes and during service opportunities throughout the year. And a third obstacle to generosity is what author David King calls comfortable guilt. He writes that most of us know that our faith requires us to give, but we're content to give just enough to make peace with our consciences about giving more. Living amid the tensions that pull us in multiple directions, we too readily resign ourselves to the fact that we're not who we hope to be. The antidote to comfortable guilt is clarity of vision. We should be able to imagine who we want to become and have the courage to pursue that vision by pushing ourselves beyond that which is easy. Generosity can only occur when our giving actually costs us something, when we sacrifice something of ourselves for the sake of others, when we give from a place beyond our disposable or discretionary income. We should regularly put ourselves in situations that challenge us, that expose us to the work of the church and the needs of the world and compel us to deepen and grow in our generosity. All of this is possible because generosity becomes ingrained in us. It moves from being a periodic event to a matter of lifestyle. Generous people are not generous from time to time, but all the time. Generosity becomes a normal default way of being. Maybe you're still wondering if you're able to take the risk of living the generous life. Maybe it still feels foreign and unsafe in the midst of the anxiety and uncertainty of this present age and this particular year. 
Maybe it still feels like going out on a limb. In his book, Run with the Horses, Pastor Eugene Peterson describes a time when he observed some birds teaching their young to fly. Three young swallows were perched on a limb that stretched out over a lake. One adult swallow got alongside the chicks and started nudging them towards the edge of the branch, push by push, and the end one fell off. And somewhere between the limb and the water, his wings started working, and the fledgling was off on his own. The second one followed suit, but the third one resisted stubbornly. At the edge of the branch, his grip loosened just enough for him to swing downward, but then he tightened his grip again, hanging upside down. The parent swallow pecked at the desperately clinging talons until it became more painful for the chick to hold on than to risk the insecurities of flying. The grip was released, and the bird began to fly. Peterson writes, The mature swallow knew what the chick did not, that it would fly, that there was no danger in making it do what it was designed to do. Birds have feet and can walk. Birds have talons and can grasp a branch securely. They can walk, they can cling, but flying is their characteristic action. And not until they fly are they living at their best, gracefully and beautifully. In the same way, Peterson says, giving is what humans do best. It is the air into which we are born. It's the action that was designed into us from our birth. Some people try desperately to hold on to themselves, to live for self. They hang on to the dead branch of selfishness and self-centeredness, afraid to risk themselves on the untried wings of generosity. Yet many people don't think they can live generously because they never tried. Friends, we are created in the image of the generous God, the God who gives himself to us in Jesus Christ, the God from whom all blessings flow. So may we live with a generosity that reflects who we were made to be, and may generosity increase among us until we, like birds discovering flight, learn to soar. Alleluia and thanks be to God. Amen.